Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. Okay, so today's topic, we're going to talk about dealing with contractors and rehab projects, which is something I get a lot of questions about, usually after the fact. Um, I wish clients would come to me before they... Uh, make all the mistakes, but let me talk about seven specific things uh, and then one sort of miscellaneous uh, catch-all topic that applies to rehab projects that you need to know about that'll make sure that your rehabs go smoother, on time, on budget, and you know the two rules of every rehab, uh, nothing gets done on time and nothing gets done on budget. Uh, so uh, we want, what we want to do is uh, is minimize the the time uh, that it takes and minimize the overages as much as we possibly can to stay on time and stay on budget or reasonably close to that. Uh, the first question I always get is, uh, and the first tip is, how do I find a contractor? Um, there, there's a number of ways to do it. You can hire a general contractor and they'll, they'll hire all the subs and that's easy. It's, you know, it's more reliable most of the time. And I say most of the time because not all general contractors are, are competent uh, or ethical or honest or all those other things that we need. But generally speaking, um, it's the easier, more reliable way to do it than say, okay, I'll be the general contractor as the owner of the property and I'll hire a contractor for each particular item. Um, if you choose to do the latter, you will save anywhere between 20 and 40% on the total overall project, depending on what the contractor's markup is. Um, you could hybrid that and have maybe a general contractor for a portion of the project, and then certain specialties like maybe a roof, a furnace, um, or maybe an electrical panel being replaced, uh, being hired specific people. Like, for example, one thing that my general contractor that I often use doesn't do is appliances. So I'm not going to call him to replace appliances. I'm going to call appliance store. He doesn't do sewer lines. So I'm going to call a sewer line company. So I generally do a hybrid of the two. And that way uh, I'm getting wholesale prices uh, on certain items and then paying retail on the things that I'm going to let him be in charge of. And hopefully the contractor you're using is not subbing it out and marking it up, but maybe he has just employees on staff that he can do it cheaper than having to just sub it out and mark it up to you and you know, just a couple of tips for saving money. Now, finding contractors, uh, referral is the number one way to do it. Uh, ask somebody you know who's done it and has someone they relied on for years. That doesn't automatically mean that that person's going to do the same job for you or the great work they did for the other person, but it's better than a shot in the dark, so to speak, such as Angie's List uh, and Home Advisor. Um, personally, I've used Home Advisor half a dozen times, and I think five out of six, I was disappointed. Uh, even though they said five stars, you know, wonderful ratings, uh, I was disappointed every time. Uh, people not calling back, people uh, not finishing jobs, people um, not showing up. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. So you got to have some patience with that. Um, Thumbtack, I've actually had better experience with. Thumbtack is a sort of um, all-purpose 
independent contractor type of website, not just for home improvement jobs, but you know, you want piano lessons, you know, for example. Uh, I found some, you know, good general light handyman workers off of Thumbtack. Craigslist, I think I've had the best experience with Craigslist, even though there's no ratings, there's no accountability. Um, I've found some of the best stuff off Craigslist. So um, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's is good too, because a lot of people who work there are also contractors part-time or used to be contractors or, or retired contractors. So a lot of times you can, uh, you can get some good recommendations or your local Ace Hardware store might be more apt to give you a referral than a big box store like a Home Depot where they have rules about employees referring people. Uh, the most important thing is no matter who you call, Get several bids, get them in writing, and ask the same questions over and over, and you're going to start seeing a consistent and inconsistent patterns. So, for example, I have a unit where I needed to replace a hot water heater, definitely. The hot water heater was leaking. It was leaking. Um, it, it got on the floor and rusted out the furnace, and the air conditioner uh, unit was was dripping into the furnace too, and they rusted out the exchanger. So the, you know the fur furnace was bad. Uh, so was the hot water heater. So I immediately replaced the hot water heater. Um, the guy charged me an arm and a leg, but it was an emergency because it was leaking water like a sieve. Okay. So then I said, okay, how about the um, the HVAC system? Well, you know, we're going to replace the the furnace. And he said, sure, but you're going to have to replace the AC too. Otherwise, it's going to continue the same drip, drip, drip problem in there with the condensation, and it's going to rust it out eventually anyway. Okay. So I said, that's fine. And he quoted me an absorbent price uh, for a furnace and an air conditioner. The whole thing replaced almost $10,000, which is ridiculous. We're talking about a 2,000-square-foot house. So I call a second person, and they say pretty close to the same thing, but 8000 I call a third guy, and the third guy goes, look, you don't need to replace your air conditioner. It's old, but it works, but there's a way I could rig it so it doesn't drip into the condensation, doesn't drip into the, to the furnace, and then therefore you can just do the furnace, and he, and he charged me 3800 bucks just to replace the furnace and do that little fix. And, I'm, and it was a good furnace, and he did a great job, and he did it on time, and it was wonderful. And uh, all of these people were referrals. Um, most of them were referrals from my property manager who uses them all the time. Uh, the 10 grand guy was from my property manager. I'm going to tell my property manager not to use him anymore. <laughs> but um, It's amazing the answers you get when you start asking the same questions of several people um, that you hear from one to the other and see what the different answers are. Okay. So, um, you know, make sure you, you get several written bids, detailed bids, you know, what you're getting, the brand, the efficiency, the size, and so forth when you're, when you're using contracts. What materials are you using? So when you ask a contractor for new kitchen cabinets, what type, what material, how many of them, the sizes. Um, when you say, I want a new uh, flooring in the bathroom, well, what are you using? What, what quality, what price? Um, you know, there's a wide range of, of, of materials that they can use, and they'll often use the cheapest. So make sure you're comparing apples to apples when you get bids and get a very, very specific bid. Not new kitchen, 10 grand, new bathroom, 4 grand, but exactly what materials they're using, how many of them, and the grade of the material, the brand of the material. Okay? That's the first thing. So uh, number two, make sure you get 
all agreements that you hire with people in writing, in writing. And often what people do is they'll get a bid in writing, you know, and maybe even get a detailed bid like I described, and that's all. And then they'll start the job based on a bid without an agreement, which is just, you know, you're, you're begging for trouble without a written contractor agreement. Now, those of you who uh, log into LegalWiz.com, uh, the rehabbing course I have, which goes into more detail on this, we have an excellent independent contractor agreement, which you should, I think, use. And um, you may have to make a few modifications, but it's a really strong one. Uh, some contractors have refused to sign it. Um, and um, if they don't have reasonable reasons for certain clauses or, you know, want certain edits to it, but just flat out refuse to sign it, I won't hire them. Because all it does is hold them accountable. It holds them accountable to what it is that they promised. And we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of that in a little bit. But make sure you have a written contract. It's very specific. It holds them accountable. Um, and especially when it comes to change orders, this is where everybody gets tripped up. So you get a $40,000 bid for a job and, you know, several things could happen. One is they call you up and say, we've got a problem. I opened up the wall and I found mold. So we're going to have to rip the, this out and that out and do remediation. And, you know, and you say, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Now, if you haven't agreed in writing as to what the cost of those additional changes are, you're going to get screwed because they're just going to bill you at the end whatever they feel like billing you and you haven't agreed on it. So any change orders, and my contract says this, any change order more than X dollars that is not an emergency fix shall be placed in writing, otherwise they will not be paid for. And if it is an emergency, contractor will bill me at this rate per hour and this cost of materials plus whatever markup you agree to. Okay? So you, you should have a, a, a contingency plan in the agreement plus a written agreement for any change orders. People do it all the time. They walk through halfway through the job and they say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you did this? Uh, maybe you should add that. And then you don't agree on the changes and then all of a sudden the $40,000 bill at the end becomes 60. And you were like, whoa, I didn't agree to this. And then and the contractor says, well, that's my rate. Now, it doesn't mean he can legally charge whatever he wants, but you know, if you're planning on flipping it, and you're two weeks from closing, and he says, well, if you don't pay me, I'll file a contractor lien, and now you're in court, and who needs that, okay? You may win, but you're going to lose because you're going to lose your buyer because of what happened. So make sure you get all agreements in writing, and on your agreement, or if they have a written agreement, make sure you go through it carefully, preferably with an attorney, and make sure you have provisions about change orders, and anytime you have a change order, put it in writing. Okay. Number three, pay by the job, not by the hour. Okay. Attorneys charge by the hour. I, in fact, I don't like doing that as an attorney. I prefer doing by the job. When I do litigation, of course, or something, you know, I can't figure out how many hours it's going to be. I have to charge by the hour, but I don't like doing it because number one, I got to keep track of my hours. Number two, there's always a question of, was that really necessary? Did you really spend that many hours? Um, and, and plus, if you hire a contractor by the hour, there's always the possibility the State Department of Labor or the IRS could say, that person's your employee if you do it enough, because you're paying them by the hour. You don't pay contractors by the hour. You pay them as by the job, okay? 
So usually the, the, what a contractor is going to want is either A, um, a substantial portion of it up front, or all of it up front I've seen, um, which is unreasonable. Um, what I suggest you do is you give part up front for the cost of materials. So depending on, you know, what the job involves, if it involves a lot of materials, you're going to have to give more upfront for the materials. So if it's a furnace, if it's a water heater, if it's a whole house has to be re-drywalled or a roof, you know, there's going to be a lot of materials you're going to have to pay for upfront. But notwithstanding that 50% upfront, unless it's 90% of that is materials, I wouldn't be paying 50% upfront, more like a quarter to a third. And again, it, it depends on how much of that is materials. Then the next payment should be upon substantial completion. So you should have a, not a date or hours or um, some vague formula, but a definition in the agreement, what we call substantial completion. Substantial completion in the contractor's mind is finished. In our mind, as the homeowner, it means mostly finished, but there's some stuff left that has to be fixed <laughs> that they didn't do or have to redo, okay? So we have to define substantial completion in the agreement. And then what you do is give the second payment on a substantial completion. So let's say you gave them 40% up front and then 40% on substantial completion. Then you still have 20% left. When do they get that? Well, the idea is you go through the house or the project or the apartment building, whatever you're rehabbing, you come up with what's called a punch list. This is unfinished items, things that aren't cleaned, things that have to be redone or touched up, and you agree with the contractor they have X amount of time to finish that punch list, and then they get the other 20%, and then you're done, okay? Now, how much should you hold back for the punch list? Enough to make it hurt, because in my experience, if you only hold back maybe five or ten percent on a you know on a forty thousand dollar job, you know five percent is only two thousand dollars. They already got thirty eight. What are the odds that they're not going to finish the punch list and just move on to the next project? So it's got to be enough to make it hurt that they're not going to say, yeah, this isn't that important to me. I'll just leave it as is and go on to the next project. No, you got to get hold back 10 or 20% to make it hurt, to make it, to make sure they finish that punch list. Now, once the punch list is done, that's it. So make sure you you're careful. You don't want to keep punch listing them over and over again. Say, oops, I missed this the first time because A, it's unfair to them and B, once you've paid them, they're gone. Okay. So make sure you really inspect that and go over it with the, them, the punch list. And the punch list should say, you know, you've got 10 days or whatever time period you agree upon to finish it to get the last 20%. And if you don't finish that punch list within that time period, you don't get it or you get a penalty of some kind or you get half of it or whatever you agree upon, depending on how much they did or did not do. Okay. So tip number three is um, um, pay in installments based on performance, not by the hour, not by dates. Okay and make sure you hold back enough for the punch list. Number four, I like to use a penalty reward system in my independent contractor agreement. And usually it goes something like this. 
Mr. Contractor, you've bid me 50000 for this job, and you're telling me it's going to take four weeks, okay? If you finish in four weeks, I'm going to give you 10% more. Because you know when he says four weeks, it's not going to be four weeks. <laughs> it's just not going to be four weeks. Okay, there's always problems. Subcontractors not showing up. Um, inspectors, missing inspectors, uh, appointments from the city for permits, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, material shortages, there's always problems. So my way of doing it is, look, if you tell me four weeks, if you finish in four weeks, I'll give you $44,000 if you're quoting me forty, or fifty-five if you're quoting me 50000 And then I'll say, if it's five weeks, it's even money. It's exactly what you promised. Because you've you got to have in your mind the idea that whatever they say, it's going to be 20 to 25% longer. So if they say two months, you've got to figure two and a half months. If they say four weeks, figure five weeks. Every week thereafter, it goes down by X percent. Let's say we agree on um, a $40,000 job. If you finish in four weeks, like you said, you get 44. If you finish in five weeks, you get 40. If you finish in six weeks, you get 35, 10% a week or 5% a week thereafter. Now, a lot of contractors will balk at that. And I understand why they'll balk at that because there are things beyond their control. But remember, they said four weeks. Okay? So if they start complaining, then I'll go right back and say, well, do you want to change your estimate on me? And give me the realistic time frame? Or do you want to give me the what I want to hear time frame? And then we'll renegotiate that, okay? But if, if they say four weeks and it's three months, there's no way they should get full price. I mean, there's just no way. I mean, they should be fired by then and you rehired another contractor, but um, depends on the scope of the project. So I like using a penalty reward system. If they finish when they say, you get a reward. If it's a week or two afterwards, it's even money. And then after that, it goes down X percent a week. That way you have a carrot and you've got a stick. All right, that's number four. Number five, as you pay, you should get a partial release of contractor lien from the contractor and his subs that he hired. If he has employees, that's different. If he, has, if he hired a sub, you want to make sure if you paid him, let's say, for X dollars for a furnace, and he hired a sub to do the furnace, you want a partial lien release in the amount you paid from the sub and from the general, okay? That's a notarized document, and what that does is it prevents them from filing a mechanics lien for the amount of work that you've done, and when you go to court, you could show the judge the partial release of lien that they did, so they can't say, well, I did more work than I was paid for, uh, and I'm owed more money. Okay. In the end, when you're all done, at, before you give them that last money after the punch list, you get a full release of lien from the general contractor. And that says a sworn affidavit saying, I've not, uh, I've not been, or in the negative, in the positive, I've been paid for everything that uh, I did on this project and I am owed no money. Okay, and that will will help protect you from mechanics liens and later claims, especially from subs. If he's using a lot of subs, you want to make sure that he gets releases from the subs as well for you. Now, a lot of people forget to do it, um, especially if there's a lot of checks flying, you know, for materials or for this or for that, multiple contractors. 
Um, a little sort of backup trick is to have a stamp that you put on the endorsement side of the check. And if you Google contractor lien endorsement stamp, contractor lien endorsement stamp, um, there's a standard language that you can get a stamp. And what you do is on the back of the um, check where the endorsement line is, you stamp right under that. That's, and the language says basically, by endorsing this check, I have been paid for all work performed on the property located in the referenced memo of the check, and you write in the memo of the check the address of the property, up, into, up until and through the date of this check. And, and if by endorsing it, they're agreeing that they've been paid. Now, that's not the same as an affidavit re lien release, but it, it's, it's evidence that will really help you if you have to go to court. So that's your backup. Use the check stamper. Okay, just Google contractor lien release endorsement stamp. And there's a million of them. Okay. Next, are we, um, are we licensed? Is this general contractor licensed for the work he's performing on the project? Now, he may not be licensed for everything, but you got to check. Now, it's different everywhere in the country. In Colorado, um, there's state licenses, and then there's city licenses. Um, and you have to have a license in that city to be a general contractor to pull permit. Um, homeowners can pull permits for their own homes, but if you're like an LLC, a lot of times they won't let you do it, um, only if it's your residence. So, uh, and even if so, in that jurisdiction, you have to demonstrate to the permit department that you have the skills to, to, you know, to pull the permit and, and supervise the job, okay? If you're going to have your general pull a permit, a general contractor's permit, that's fine. Make sure he's licensed. What a lot of them will do is say, well, I'm not licensed in this city, but my buddy John is, so I'll use his license and pay him 300 bucks. That's okay as long as you know that and get the name, address, telephone number, email, of the person who's pulling the permit, so he understands that he's responsible if the general contractor screws up, it's his license on the line, okay? Um, now, if there are specific things like um, a roof, a furnace, electrical panel, those require permits separately. And usually you have to have a license to be uh, a plumber, uh, an HVAC, a electrician, et cetera. The general contractor may not have those licenses, so he's going to hire subs. So you want to have in your agreement that if he's going to sub those, they must be licensed in that jurisdiction and they must pull permits. And he must present you permits. And before you pay that substantial completion number, you want to see a permit, a permit number, and a sign-off of that permit being inspected and closed out by the jurisdiction before you pay, okay? I can't tell you how many times I've happened to me, happened to clients, where they never pulled a permit or they never had it inspected afterwards, and then the inspector came back and said, it's all wrong, it's all got to be redone. And then the contractor skips off into la-la land, they're broke, you can't sue them, you can't find them, and you've got to hire a contractor to not only rip out what he did, but to redo it. 
All right, so be careful about permits. Do you pull a permit for everything, or do I pull a permit for everything, or should you pull a permit for everything? Well, let's be honest. Certain things are not health and safety uh, that you can get away with. For example, um, in a lot of jurisdictions, if you're ripping out more than X amount of drywall, you have to sister studs in if they're too far apart. According to the old code, it was you know, X amount of inches, and new code, it's, it's, it's narrower. So, for example, if you rip out a surround in a bathroom, um, you wouldn't normally need a permit for that. But if you rip it out and you rip out the drywall, code might say you have to go in and put extra studs in there you know, sister studs or extra studs in between the existing studs, and you need a permit for that, okay? Is anybody going to die if you don't put extra studs around the bathroom walls? No. So do you need to pull a permit? You're supposed to. You know, are you going to do it for everything? Probably not. You're probably – I mean, I had a situation where we literally in the kitchen, we ripped off the um, existing cabinets off the wall, and they were glued, some idiot glued them so and they ripped off a certain amount of drywall now the contractor um didn't pull a permit for that there we were doing a sewer line inspection and uh that requires a separate permit and the guy came in the house to use the bathroom and saw the holes in the in the in the kitchen and said oh no you got to take all that drywall off and you got to put studs and you got to get a permit and we were busted you know you don't go to jail for it but you know it was, a, it was a delay, and it was a cost, and it was an, an unnecessary expense. So make sure your contractor is smart enough to know what permits to pull, what permits you can get away without pulling, and when inspectors should come <laughs> and inspect and not see the other things that they might say you need a permit for, if you get my drift. All right? So I'm not telling you as a lawyer, don't follow the law, but the restrictions are a little absurd sometimes. If it's anything health and safety, if it's anything dangerous, pull a permit, okay? Um, if you're in a jurisdiction where a lender, like when I come from originally practicing in New York, when you did a major rehab job, you needed a certificate of occupancy, uh, even on a rehab, not just new build, before a lender would close on a loan. And to get that certificate of occupancy, that you had to show you build permits for all the work that was done. So, you know, it really depends on your jurisdiction, okay? Um, and, if, and if a contractor, by the way, if you're doing a lot of work and a contractor says, ah, we don't need to pull permits for that, you know what, that you can usually conclude for that? You can conclude that they're not licensed in that jurisdiction. All right, so, so ask. Uh, so that's, uh, that's seven. So look, to review the seven tips, number one was finding contractors and uh, interviewing them and make sure you get bids and compare apples to apples. Number two, get all agreements in writing, especially change orders. Number three, pay by the job, part up front, part upon the substantial completion, and a chunk that you hold back for the finishing of the punch list. Number four, use a penalty reward system for the payment to make sure they finish on time. Number five, get release of liens. Number six, check for licenses. And number seven, permits, what, when to, when not to, okay? And, and one last topic I wanted to cover that was um, just kind of related to this that you have to just know about when you're doing major jobs, especially on older houses, uh, lead paint, asbestos, meth, and mold. 
Uh, let me talk briefly about those. We could spend a lot of time on them, but let me just clue you in if you don't know to what you don't know that you don't know. Okay. So if the house is pre-78, um, it's probably got lead paint in it. Now, does that mean um, you can't do anything without a special permit? No. The rules say that if you remove more than X, and I don't remember off the top of my head, you can Google it. If you remove more than X square inches of drywall, or you do new windows or window sills, you must pull a permit and have a specially certified contractor to remediate the leg. I don't know anybody who does that. I don't know anyone who's been caught. Now, I'm not saying you want to be the test case. I'm just saying I've done a lot of jobs, and I know a lot of contractors who got certified for this, and they all said, I've never been questioned. I don't know anybody who's ever been in, you know, uh, audited on this or, or caught on this or fined for this. Um, you know, if you're talking about a house that's really old, you know, you got to assume that you got lead paint there, especially around the windows. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about a house built in 75, you know, you're changing out drywall, uh, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. You know, it, it, because if you have to pull a permit, a special permit, you have to hire a, a, a contractor who has those skills, and they're going to charge you more. Same thing with asbestos. You know, if you have a house that was built in the 50s or older, you can guarantee any tile that's on that floor has got asbestos, and there's asbestos in the attic. Now, if you don't disturb the asbestos, you're generally okay. But if you pull up that tile, or if you go up in the attic and start disturbing asbestos or start taking out walls that have asbestos or ceilings or whatever, um, then you have to pull special EPA permits for that and have someone who's qualified to dispose of that asbestos, all right, and remediate that asbestos. So just, like, don't get over crazy about the asbestos thing, but if you're going to disturb anything, get an expert to get an opinion. The same thing with mold. Um, you know, mold can be minor. It could be major. Uh, if you're not sure, get a professional in there and test it. They have kits in Home Depot. I don't know how reliable I would count on those things. Um, if you think there's some, you know, if there's been a leak that's been you know, there for months or years in a bathroom and there's serious damage to the ceiling in the in the room below it you got to assume there's mold in there and you got to open it up and you got to get uh probably a mold remediator to go in and give you an opinion and give you a bid and you may have to pay for that bid um it's better to be safe than sorry meth that's the last thing um again uh, they have kits but if you suspect if you get a neighbor or you actually know of meth that was uh being uh, cooked in that house, uh, you have to get an OSHA certified contractor to remediate it, which usually means ripping everything down to the studs, and it's worse than mold remediation, and it's very expensive to do. I wouldn't say don't do a meth house. I wouldn't say that, but the rule is in, in Colorado, at least, if you remediate it by the book and you get the health department to sign off and you use an OSHA certified contractor, you don't have to disclose it. Now, do you really want to sell a house to someone and have the neighbors come and say, oh, you bought the meth house? <laughs> Not really. 
um, you know, there's going to be a stigma attached to it, undoubtedly, depending on how bad the, you know, the meth problem was. If it was limited to, you know, a room in the garage, yeah, no big deal. You know, if it was the whole basement, could be a big deal. I bought a meth house once. The whole basement was remediated, um, and I just rented it. I rented it for 10 years, and then I finally sold it, and it was no problem. I just disclosed it, and I had certification that there was no meth, and it was 10 years ago, and I didn't have a problem at all with it. But if you plan on immediately reselling a house that was, you know, they were cooking meth in the kitchen upstairs and in the bathrooms and in the tub and downstairs, you could have some stigma in that house, and you got to be careful about that. But uh, do it by the book and make sure you get the health department to sign off on it. All right. So that's the mini version of dealing with contractors and rehab projects. You'll find more on the rehabbing course on LegalWiz.com when you log in and go through the course manual. And I've got forms. I've got a great contractor contract and release of lien forms and punch list forms and, and um, change order forms. And make sure you use those and make sure you heed my very useful advice on this topic. Happy contracting. And free articles and videos. Visit his website at www.legalwiz.com.